Good morning, Dunbar Heights. Really pleased to be here with you again, second week in a row. Um, great to go with you to the Sermon on the Mount, spend some time there. It's one of that great passages of Scripture that any of us who love Scripture love because we know Jesus is calling us into a different way of life. And that's what we really want to talk about today, continuing on in your series on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me start by telling you a story about a few Saturdays ago. So I was forced to replace a cedar fence in my backyard. Some of you have this problem. There's not supposed to rot, but it was definitely rotting. And I said, I've got to do that, but I'm going to start minimally, just do three of the panels. I only have to replace one post. It's all good. So I bought a four by four post, two or three fence panels, and I was raring to go. And I told Joanna, my wife, that this is probably going to take me two hours, maybe three at the outside. We could go for a walk, go somewhere, take our dog out in the afternoon on that Saturday. It was going to be great. All I had to do was dig out that old post, put in the new one, throw in a bag of cement, stir it around, attach the new panels. All done. Piece of cake. My only real concern was that on the inside of our fences, where we had raspberry bushes leaning up against the fence all the way along, and on the outside of the fence there were holly bushes, because there's a public pathway there, and that holly bushes were pushing right up against the fence. So that concerned me a little bit. Anyway, you can likely prophesy how that went, how that story actually turned out. So reality kicked in for me about two hours later when I was still, I was like six inches down in around the post, trying to get this post out, and I realized that the bit of concrete that was around the post was not really a bit of concrete. It was about a 20 foot, or 20, 20 feet would be really big, 20 inch wide piece of concrete in a circle, and that went down four feet. It was pretty obvious the developer had come along with an auger, put those, they just held the post in, they had a cement truck and poured in the cement. It wasn't like me putting in a bag of cement at all. Quite a different thing altogether. So Joanna, who had heard me overpromise and underdeliver on many, many projects and how long that would take, came out around 6.30 p.m. So, you know, eight to ten hours later than I said it would be, and she found me lying on the ground under a holly tree, not moving at all, covered in blood from a hundred little cuts on my face and my arms because it was going to be pretty easy, so I had on a short sleeve shirt, shorts, the whole thing, and blood everywhere, and the jackhammer that I had gone and had to rent was stuck in the concrete four inches or four feet down into a hole, and I just couldn't work it anymore. My back hurt too much. I was too tired. I'm just lying on the ground saying, this is never going to happen. And Joanna, being the caring, compassionate wife that she is, you know, laughed at me. Too often the story of my life where the goal and the reality don't match. What I thought was going to be easy to do wasn't easy to do at all, or I made a promise that I really had no shot at fulfilling. The Sermon on the Mount sometimes feels that way to me. It's like I got no shot at this at all. Jesus is asking me, he's asking you to be a person and live a life that it feels like we can never do, we can never achieve, and it's the more likely ending that I'm going to end up lying on the ground, covered in blood from a hundred failures, feeling like I can't go any further. It's likely 
as you've gone through here, that Pastor Wes has pointed out to you, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus, as he's introducing his requirements for us, for those living for him, following him, he says, I tell you the truth, or I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, unless it surpasses them, your righteousness surpasses them, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a daunting kind of a thing. You know, of course, the Pharisees had very exact and intensely detailed approach to the law and the exact words of the law, and they kept them exactly. That's a pretty high bar for us to jump. Unless it surpasses that, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. And then we end this section of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 48 of chapter 5, and Jesus says to the people listening to him on the mountainside, his disciples, and he says to them, so here's, here's how this works. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. How could that go wrong? How is it even possible we could end up lying behind a tree or underneath the holly tree, a bunch of little cuts saying there's no shot at doing this at all? So the good news and the bad news in the Sermon on the Mount, and again, I'm rehearsing what you probably already know. The good news is that the new way of life that Jesus is talking about as he's preaching this sermon, teaching this sermon, is about character and relationship rather than about keeping rules and laws and a legalistic approach to life. That's the good news. The bad news is, is it's a legitimate relationship. That is a real heartfelt, deeply committed love to the Father, or for the Father, for the Son, for the Holy Spirit, that demands so much more from us than memorizing a rule book, than in any sense trying to keep all these exact rules, going through a checklist every day, every week, saying, check, check, check. It's way higher than that. So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it has to be our heart's desire. It has to be the drive of our life to continue to grow in that direction where the ultimate standard is not rules, it's not laws, it's God himself. That's the standard. So when we read words like, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, Jesus is referring to an inner transformation of our heart that changes us at a very core level, rather than some kind of self-righteousness or picky piety that simply irritates everybody around us. Saying it's not a checklist at all, but it's so much more. So much higher than that. And within this section of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, Jesus gives eight examples of what that looks like, but don't lose it. He's not saying this is all there is to it. He's giving eight examples of the way it works out. And today we're looking at the final two of them. You've already looked at six, we're looking at the final two. And I just want to read some of this and kind of give you the principle, then we'll talk about the details about what he says. So the first principle is this, we find in verse 38 through 42, where Jesus teaches us that a righteous heart, that is, a heart that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, a righteous heart isn't focused on what it deserves, but rather what it can give. A righteous heart 
isn't focused on what it deserves, but rather what it can give. These are the words of Jesus, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So this, uh, the context of this is that the Jewish state legal system was based to a large part on one of the oldest legal tenets of mankind, still part of our legal system today, it goes back a long way, called lex talionis, or the principle of exact retribution. Specifically, comes in verse 38 where it says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sometimes that's referred to as the Mosaic law of retribution or the law that Moses gave, but the truth is it was all around the known world at that time and it was even before the time of Moses. And it demanded a fair and equal reprisal for something that was done or a financial equivalent for the damages. So you see that in today's world where uh, somebody, actually I saw it in the newspaper this morning, where someone is suing somebody and they want a particular amount of money for um, penalty, but they also want an equal amount or another set of money having to do with the damages. That goes back to this basic principle. And it's intended to guarantee legal fairness and limit an ever-escalating revenge motive or vindictive action by people where you just keep looking for more and more and more and more and more, and that just keeps getting bigger and higher, and the problem gets bigger and worse. But by the time of Jesus, for these Pharisees, they were applying that corporate law, that is the state legal law, to personal relationships, to their interactions with other people. And they were asking, what could they do back to somebody without actually breaking the written code? So their question was, what am I allowed to do? What can I do and get back to him without going over the limit? What are they justified in doing to someone in order to get their pound of flesh? And they're allowed to do it. The real outcome for that kind of approach, of course, in person-to-person interaction is that when people decide they want their equal and just retaliation, it starts to breed this never-ending cycle of hatred and increasing bitterness. It gets worse and worse. It never gets better. Not in real life, real-time kind of relationships. And Jesus calls out that kind of thinking in the Sermon on the Mount, that kind of heart, because it doesn't characterize people of the kingdom. It isn't what followers of Jesus are meant to be like. Those characteristics that he'd already introduced at the beginning of chapter 5, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers. Instead of asking how much retribution you can get without breaking the rules, Jesus says, no, I tell you something different, altogether different. Do not resist an evil person. Don't resist him. It's a very interesting statement. And I want you just to pin that in this little journey this morning for a second while I take a slight detour so we don't get lost in that statement about don't resist an evil person. So Jesus is not telling us here in the Sermon on the Mount through that statement to be a doormat to the world. 
he is not telling us to have a complete pacifist approach. And in the history of the church, some people, and not the church, some people have gone to crazy lengths on this particular verse and taken it to kind of ridiculous levels. So for example, a brilliant author, some of you would know, Russian author Leo Tolstoy, Tolstoy, in his book, What I Believe, said that he believed that Christians were forbidden to be participants in or to use a court system, ever. He said that police and prisons shouldn't be allowed. And in fact, he went so far as to say you should never block or stifle evil in society. Why? Because Jesus told you not to resist an evil person. A lot of people buy that. However, that would contradict other biblical teaching that says the state is appointed by God to exercise authority on behalf of all, for example. So this is not a statement, nor should we ever use this statement to advocate allowing abuse in a relationship between people or abuse in any circumstance where people are involved. Nor is it suggesting that there would never be a just war when you're opposing tyrants or those committing genocide or anything like that. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. So you with me on that? Take the pin back out. We're going to get back into the main passage. So for our purposes this morning, please understand what Jesus is saying. He is telling us that a legalistic and rights-demanding approach is not reflective of people who have received undeserved and unrestrained grace and mercy and have been asked to share it. It's not the approach of Christ's followers. Rights and exact fairness are about rules and rule books, but grace, love, and generosity are about the heart and that is the standard that God has given us, and it is a standard that is much higher than the law. That's the principle. So let's just look briefly at each of the four examples that he gives, because you're going to see they play out in real life. They play out in your life today just as much as they played out in the life of Jesus. But don't miss this. It's four examples of the way the principle works out. It isn't the only examples. But they're what Jesus is listeners would understand and what we will still understand. So here's four examples of how that works out. He gives one example for when we're diminished as people or somebody treats us poorly. And he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. So striking on the right cheek was an insulting, degrading slap. Typically, if you're right-handed, it means you slap somebody like this, use the back of your hand across somebody's face. It's painful, but it's also a statement about personal value. It degrades a person. It's, in a way, less respectful than punching them. Not that I'm suggesting you punch them. But that's kind of what this is about. And the tendency when that happens, when somebody diminishes us, when somebody degrades us, when somebody treats us poorly, is we want to retaliate, we want to insult them back. In fact, it's so universal a feeling that C.S. Lewis used that example as proof of a moral absolute, as proof for God, in his book, Mere Christianity. It's universal as a feeling around the world. And it's personally difficult. So when somebody attacks you, or me, or whoever, and attacks our character, or diminishes who we are, or some way tries to squish us into a smaller person than the person that God made with less value in a demeaning kind of way, our natural tendency is to strike back. And at that point in my life, at least for me, 
I'm not even interested in fair and equitable. I'm not worried about what's a fair law. I just want to win. That's my natural response. And Jesus comes out and says, no, that's not how it works. A generous heart, a righteous heart, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees transcends the need for retribution. Indeed, offer your other cheek to be hit again. Completely different. Gives a second example. Verse 40 says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, and ha then hand over your coat as well. This example is when we want to fight for our legal rights. So this is drawn from a case where Jewish law regulated that a person was allowed to sue you, and they could sue you literally for the shirt on your back. That was allowed. But they couldn't sue you for your coat, for your outside jacket, your winter jacket. And Jesus says, so if you go into court and somebody's suing you and they want to take the clothes off your back, give them your coat as well. Even though the law insists that you have the right to keep it. Do not assert your rights at that point. And Jesus, obviously, I hope, he's not suggesting literally that people who are suing you, if they do it, you should give your coat and you should go home in your underwear. That wasn't his idea. That's not his idea for people then. It's not his idea now. But his point was that we shouldn't be continually fighting for our rights, even in the legal system. We have to go beyond that. And that is massively counter to the Jewish culture and it is massively counter to our litigious culture today. Again, that example hasn't changed at all. I can remember, I might have mentioned this to you as a church, actually, maybe, a uh, number of years ago in another sermon. I got sued when I was coaching baseball. So I coached baseball for 20 years, and uh, three times in my life I've been sued. This was one of them. I got sued. I was coaching third base, and I was coaching a team of kids that were 11 and 12-year-olds, and an 11-year-old who was up to bat hit a foul ball. It went out of the ballpark, over the fence, and hit somebody sitting in the stands on their toe. And I got sued for $10,000 because I, as a third base coach, should have jumped the fence, run over, caught the ball, and never allowed the foul ball to hit his foot. I, I don't know what the thought process was. I have no idea how that worked. I know that I was irate that I was actually being sued for $10,000, went through a legal system with insurance companies, all that kind of stuff. In the end of the day, they decided it wasn't worth going to court. They paid him off. I had to pay a deductible of $500 for someone who stubbed his toe on a baseball when an 11-year-old hit it out of the park. As you can see, I've worked out my anger completely over that particular issue. Truth is, when I was sued over something that seemed that dumb, there was no way I wanted them to win, and I for sure was not handing over my baseball uniform as well. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Don't be so concerned about your legal rights. That might ring a bell for us today in Canada in discussions about church, not to mention discussions in our own lives. He goes on to a third example. And he talks about when somebody imposes on our personal freedom. His example, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This is based on the context where the Roman military, if they were going on a forced march or a march somewhere, they could commandeer people who were walking around that they could see and force them to carry their military equipment for a prescribed distance. And it took, obviously, the people who had other plans for their day right out of their plan. So it means you're just walking along, you're going off doing stuff, you've got things you want to do, and the Roman military guy, hey, you, 
carry my stuff, and you had no choice. Jesus says to them, well, if that happens, and they force you to go one mile, go two. So pause and think about that for a second in real life, because this is a real-life scenario for people in Jesus' time. It's a hard way to think. It's a hard thing to do that we would take our personal freedoms that we hold so dear and when they get imposed upon and it interferes with our life, it takes us a different direction than we are planning on going for our day or longer, whatever it is. And Jesus says, well, whatever they ask you, go further. Do more. And it's kind of instructive in church history just how much we dislike this because in church history, quite a few advocates have taught that Jesus literally means two miles. So if he says... Anyone forces you to go one mile, you should go two. You don't have to go 2.1 miles. You don't have to go 2.2 miles. You go exactly two. That's the law. That's the new law that Jesus said, which, of course, misses the entire point of what Jesus was saying, which is it transcends the law. A generous heart transcends the law. Don't look for the minimum you can do. Then he gives a fourth example where he really strikes home for many of us, I think, if he hasn't already, in verse 42, where he says, then give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He's talking about our attitude towards people and money. And it's similar to the rest. His point is that generosity of spirit, generosity of money, be at your core. So you're walking down the street and you see a homeless guy and he's looking and he's begging, he's wanting some money and we look the other way, we try to be sure we don't have any eye contact, we don't want that. Or somebody's phoning you and they want money on the phone because that happens every night at 5.30 during dinner. You know, do you hang up the phone right away? Or you have a family member who wants money, they keep coming for money. What do you do with them? You tell them, no, we're not going to do that. And Jesus says, no, look to help people. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, let me just pause again. I hope it's obvious. But because we're very literal in our application of things, again, <laughs> violating the entire point of what Jesus is saying, but... It's not a literal statement that you have to give to every single person who ever wants anything from you. If it was, I would spend all my time and all my money answering emails, voicemails, and mail, mail, and people that come to me and want money for various things because it seems to be kind of part and parcel of our society today that there's always somebody who always wants something. Nor is it a suggestion that we be undiscerning about where that money is going or how it is being used, because sometimes the money we give is to their detriment, not to their good. So it's not as simple as just every single person ever that you've ever met. That's not what I'm referring to. But listen, neither do we get to avoid helping people in real need, justifying our holding on to our resources, that is a greedy pursuit of our own money, a lack of generosity of spirit, while making judgmental statements about the people who ask for help, the people who need help. That's not who we are. That's not who followers of Jesus are. And the principle in each of these four examples is pretty simple. It goes back to that bigger thing we started with. A righteous heart that surpasses that of the Pharisees isn't focused on what it deserves, what its rights are, but rather what it can give. It's a heart that doesn't keep score. 
It's a heart that believes we have already received grace upon grace, and we're never going to catch up. So be generous. This is a hard sell. It's a hard sell today in the church. It's been a hard sell for the church in a broader scale throughout COVID. I think the good news for us, for most of our churches in Fellowship Pacific, which is who I work for, which is including you, of course, is that throughout the pandemic, we've had churches and people who have demonstrated generosity of spirit. It's been true of your church. I've read some of your stories, and they're pretty awesome. And that's true of the vast majority of our churches. We've had meaningful discussions about our rights and what they should be. And even more importantly than discussions about our rights, we've had discussions about who we should be, which is exactly the conversations we ought to be having, and I'm thankful that we do have. I'm thankful for a board that represents our churches that I work for who pushes for that and wants that. Every church, or almost every church, has felt the internal pressures of differing opinions and perspectives. But the vast majority of people have chosen not to focus on what they deserve, but how they can help, how they can serve, how they can love. But it's still hard. And I think these things, this attitude, this approach to life, is really hard in day-to-day -day life today in Canada, in North America, um, when you're being sued, when you've gone through a divorce or going through a divorce and you're fighting over custody of kids, when there's unfairness or discrimination at work, when there's harassment or whether it's discrimination based on um, gender, or based on age, based on whatever, when all of those things happen which seem to be so prevalent in life, Jesus is telling us it's not all about the rules. It's not about the rules. It's not about fairness, which is not to say we shouldn't ever speak into that again, but it's about generosity of heart, where the standard is how God has treated us. So first principle, a righteous heart isn't focused on what it deserves, but what it can give. Second principle is this. He talks about it in verses 43 to 48. He says that a righteous heart that is, that exceeds that of the Pharisees, again, is not focused on who deserves what, but rather on who we're called to love. It isn't focused on who deserves what, but rather on who we are called to love. His words, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus points to another misquote of Scripture where he starts off saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Truth is, Scripture never says that. It never says that. We're taught to love our neighbor. We are never taught to hate our enemy. But these same legalistic, rules-keeping, follow-every-letter-of-the-law kind of Jewish people and the righteousness that they sought to live based out of that legalism had found a loophole. Their loophole was... We do love our neighbor. We are told to love our neighbor. 
but it doesn't tell us really we can't hate our enemy. So we can hate our enemy, we just have to love our neighbor, right? And they actually taught that to a certain degree, at least certain groups of the Jews did. So the Qumran community, for example, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, instructed people to love your neighbor and hate the outsider. It was part of their standard teaching. And that whole concept of um, living that way, just having to love my neighbor and only my neighbor, I believe at least, is part of what prompted Jesus to teach the parable of the Good Samaritan where he was asking that question to another keeper of the law, another righteous Pharisee, who had said, well, then who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this story about how you understand who your neighbor is and who it isn't and what God has actually called you to do about loving your neighbor. Jesus then calls out that attitude in the Sermon on the Mount here where he says, okay, that's how they're thinking. Let me tell you how I'm thinking. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because we're like to be like our Father in heaven. We are children of our Father in heaven. God is the standard. That's the new standard. That's what you're aiming for. Out of your heart, not out of the rules. And so he tells us, reflect the values, reflect the heart of God. Be children of God. Show his character in what you do. And the reality is, whether we like it or not, I think in any of us who are parents, would recognize this, our children often acquire our characteristics. We may not like it, they may not like it, but it happens. So here's a weird thing that's happened in my life. My biological father died about two months before I was born, so I grew up in a single-parent home until my mother remarried to a Japanese-Canadian guy who's great and loves God and loves Jesus and loves our family, which is awesome. But I never knew at all in the sense I never met my actual biological father. But throughout my life, I've met people who knew him. And I've heard repeatedly that I have his mannerisms, that I talk like him. Not just look like him, but talk like him and have his mannerisms. And I think, how can that even be? How is that even possible? That's super weird. But then sometimes I look at my sons, and now I am there for him, Thank God, literally, that that's true. And I see some of my way of thinking, some of my mannerisms, some of my character in them, for good and for bad, and I can guarantee you they never want to hear that. They never want anybody saying that to them in their wildest dreams. That would be like the worst possible outcome. And yet they're stuck with it, like it or not. Jesus is saying, look, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Reflect his character. And that's what we're called to do. And he makes two points about what being like our Father um, should be, or why that matters. First, he says, remember that God extends his love to everyone equally. He doesn't discriminate. It rains equally on both the good and the bad. The sun shines equally on the good and the bad. God isn't discriminating the way he shares his love to people. And second, he says, remember that it's no great accomplishment for you to love those who love you. If you love those, in verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Don't even the tax collectors do that. No accomplishment to love people who love you. All that takes is a big ego. That's it. Of course you love me. You should love me. I'm lovable. Not much to say for that particular argument. 
And Jesus says, look, even a tax collector can do that. And there was nobody lower in the societal echelon of the Jewish world than a tax collector. They had sold their loyalty, literally sold it for money, their loyalty to Rome, and took advantage of their fellow Jews in kind of a pyramid scheme where everybody in it who was working for the tax collector took their own cut of money so that the Jewish people themselves got taken advantage of all the way through the process. So they had this massive reputation for corruption. And Jesus says, Christ followers have to aim for something different than that, don't we? Aren't we different than that? Isn't that our character that talked about, he talked about in the Beatitudes again? And we have to do more, he says, than just greet and love people that we already know and love. Which is a pretty bubble comment, isn't it? Because we've had a year and a half where our bubbles are the people we know and love. So it's interesting, it'll be interesting to see when we get back together, when our churches gather, if new people come walking into our church, if we're so consumed with our bubble that we haven't had for a year and a half with the people that we know and we love, that we want to see desperately, do we have it in our heart to go beyond that, beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, exceeding to a different standard, where we can go and sacrifice ourselves and even our relationships to love new people who need to be loved? It's my prayer, certainly, that that will be true. The standard is totally different. And remember that the Jesus who's saying this about loving your enemies, it's the same Jesus who came from the Father, we're told in John 1, full of grace and truth, who came and pup-tented, who stayed with us for a brief time, sacrificed himself for us. Remember that it's the same Jesus who, who taught us and taught his disciples at the Last Supper by washing all the disciples' feet, including Judas, who was going to betray him, and Peter, who was going to deny him. And we're told in John that Jesus already knew that was true for both Peter and Judas. And Jesus goes and washes their feet, and then he steps back and says, by the way, that's what love looks like. Standard that blows my mind. I look at it and think, I don't know that I can do it. I don't know that I can do it. Remember that the Jesus who is teaching this is the same Jesus who hung on a cross for us, taking a place for our sin where we had rejected him and then prayed, forgive them, Father, for the people who actually crucified him. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. It's an approach to life that Jesus lived and died for. It wasn't just the words of a sermon. So we read this as a sermon on the mount, and sometimes we step back and say, that's the greatest moral teaching of all time. Most say it's the pinnacle of moral teaching in the history of the world. But it's more than teaching. It was Jesus' life and his death, and it's what he called us to so Jesus tells us in this passage that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Scary thought. He tells us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect because he's the standard. And we saw the two examples of that. Righteous heart isn't focused on what it deserves, its rights, but what it can give. A righteous heart isn't focused on who deserves what, but on who we're called to love. And I think it's clear we aren't achieving this target on our own. It's a very rare week for me in my particular role and job. It's a rare week that goes by when I don't have a conversation with someone 
about being the person Christ called us to be rather than reacting to the person in front of us. Where they're calling and there's an issue with somebody might be outside of church, inside of church, might be a staff person, might be all kinds of things like that. And I'm saying, hey, don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. Be who Christ has called you to be. Be who Christ has called you to be rather than responding in kind, rather than looking to get even, rather than claiming your rights, rather than hating the person because they're not that close to you, you weren't buddies anyway. When retaliation and exact retribution becomes part of who we are and what we do, the world is in chaos. It's in troubles. We see that between nations. We see it in the newspaper every day right now. And I could point to the hot spots of the world the same as you can and see how that idea of I'm going to get uh, my revenge at the same level it was given occurs over and over. We see it in our responses to COVID between people, between people in governments and churches in government. We see it between businesses and in businesses. We see it in the gang wars of Vancouver in the newspapers every day what that looks like in real life. We see it in broken families and separations where the kids uh, get destroyed between the battles of the parents. We see it in dysfunctional churches. We see it when somebody just cuts us off the road and our immediate response is, what are we going to do about it? So please hear me. When the world around us determines our view of justice, equity, and even fairness, we are aiming at a very low bar. We're aiming at a bar that's about the rules rather than a bar that's about the heart. And the only thing any one of us as an individual can control, and even this takes the work of the Spirit in us because we can't do it on our own, the only thing we control, control is who we are. And we should never hand over that control to somebody else by simply copying the approach of the world, by living a legalistic life, because when we do, when we hand that over, we lose far more than our personal desire for apparent fairness. We lose our very identity in Jesus. The Jesus who preached this sermon, the Jesus who called us to this kind of life, the Jesus who lived this life to the point of death on a cross for us. We lose that identity, the very sense of who we are in Jesus, when we think these are just words on a page and we walk away from them. Don't give that power to the world. We've got to choose who we are. Jesus calls us to go beyond fairness to generosity, beyond reciprocity to love, because that's how we were invited into the kingdom. That's how we are perfect as God the Father is perfect. It's how we grow in the kingdom through the Spirit's work in us, and it's how we as citizens of the kingdom are expected to live. And in every day, in every one of our lives, in your life, as in mine, there is opportunity for us to live this out because every day in every one of our lives, there are opportunities that arise where fairness, rights, uh, personal freedoms all feel like they're being violated. And we have a chance to live out these principles. And if you don't see these opportunities in our world in Vancouver today, then you're probably not looking very hard because they're there every single day. But if you do see them, you see them in your own life, you see them in your relationships with people, sometimes in your family, sometimes with your neighbors, sometimes at work, sometimes at church, sometimes at play, wherever that may be, then I invite you to join the rest of us in a struggle for a higher standard. 
for something different. Jesus is going to tell us that the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. That means it has very high value. It means it has very high cost. And we need to pay it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I'm just amazed that every time I come to it, every time I look into it, I hear you speaking to me, See, <laughs> just hear you gnawing at the edges of my heart, poking at me, saying, hey, David, what's going to change? What's going to change? What's going to change? And I would ask you to keep doing it, that I would become the person you want me to be, that I would be formed into the image of your son, that I would reflect your character through him and through his likeness in me to the world around me. Father, today I would pray that for every person who listens to this sermon, who looks at these words from the Sermon on the Mount and hears you saying to them, I need to change as well. Father, we all need your spirit to do that transforming work because we know we are incapable on our own. But we do want our identity in Jesus to be the core of who we are. And we know this is the central teaching that he lived out in his life. Allow that to be true for us. Demand that it be true for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.